It's Wednesday, May 24th. It's 2.45 in the afternoon, and I'm Eric Zorn, sitting in as host for John Williams. You know, John's writers are on strike, and so he can't possibly host the podcast because everything he says on his podcast is scripted and gone through a whole writer's room, and they're all gone. So I, I have, I mean, that's what I'm guessing. I, he just told me he couldn't make the, the show today. Uh, and you can read my uh, publication, The Picayune Sentinel, online for free. You can email me, ericzorn at gmail.com, and I'll send it to you every Thursday. I'm Austin Berg from the Illinois Policy Institute. You can listen to my podcast, America's Talking, and I guess that means we are scabs, right? We're scabby the right. Rest. I've got. I've just tried to read what I've written for myself to say here, or someone else has written for me to say. So, who have you been interviewing lately on your podcast? We've had a bunch of people on. So it, the idea is just sort of interesting folks across academia, art, comedy. I think the most popular episode we had was with um, Mark Normand, who's a big stand-up comic. He has a bunch of Netflix specials. He opened for Seinfeld. A couple of weeks ago, I had someone on from American Enterprise Institute who works on sort of like free market poverty solutions. Um, it's a pretty w- broad range of stuff. I just talked with the guy. He was the in-house historian at C-SPAN, and he just wrote a book on Gerald Ford, Richard Norton Smith. Oh, yeah, 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 sure. Uh, Grand Rapids, Grand Rapids, so right near the Ford Museum. So we talked about Gerald Ford and interesting stuff around him. Is this part of your job at, at IPI, or is this like it's a totally separate, separate thing? So that, that podcast is published through... Franklin News Foundation, which publishes the Center Square, who you might see as the mm-hmm. Newswire service that they do Illinois. And I think they're in all 50 states now, but they have a podcast network and it's called America's Talking Network. So that's the flagship pod of that. And how long have you been doing it? How many episodes? Uh, you this At least two, I think two years, maybe. It's hard to remember because we started during COVID. So I feel like it could have been, it could be three years. It could be one year. I don't book anyway. the guests and I go in with questions that I researched the guests on. But other than that, I do no, I do no work other than researching questions. Should we start today? I'm, I'm thinking about some stories that are on the local news radar. And uh, one thing that's, uh, that's interesting to me, that's, it's a local story, it's a regional story, it's a national story, is this debt limit problem that we have. We're running, I guess we have eight days now until the nation defaults on its debt and plunges us into a severe economic crisis, perhaps a depression. If we think that's going to happen, I'm just wondering what what your thoughts. I've got my thoughts on that, but what are your thoughts about this debate? This this recurring problem that shows up every few years. They fight about the debt limit. It's very frustrating and getting frightening right now. A couple thoughts. One is that the problem with the debt ceiling is never actually the debt ceiling because if there's an actual risk of default, Congress is going to avoid that. I just don't believe that there is actually going to be a risk of default because people can't raise the debt ceiling. It always gets raised at the last minute. Very rarely are there any concessions made because there's just such a there's always a slamming on the brakes before we drive off the cliff because the consequences are, are severe of defaulting. But because we focus so much on the debt ceiling, it glosses over the fact that Growing federal debt is a big problem, and it's simply evidence of the failure to make tough choices. So this year, I think our budget deficit is around $1.4 trillion with a T. That will reach about $2.8 trillion by 2033 over the next 10 years. That is assuming peace, prosperity, relatively low interest rates, no new spending, and that some of the provisions of the Trump tax cuts in 2017 expire as scheduled. So that is $20 trillion in new borrowing over 10 years. For context, 
we as a country have over our entire history accumulated 31 trillion dollars in debt so it's a amount growing debt is a huge problem and raising the ceiling is simply kicking the can down the road so it's a, one it's evidence of the problem of debt generally the second big problem that it always that this debate always uh, brings up for me is the fact that congress does not function how it is supposed to function all of these negotiations are happening between leadership and the president no one's offering floor amendments on spending bills or any of this stuff congress is not functioning as a legislative body it's done behind closed doors at the last minute very similar to like the illinois legislature but at a national scale and that's a problem that needs to be changed too. Leadership needs to decentralize power in these sorts of negotiations. So those are the two the two things it brings up for me. I mean, the decentralizing power, though, I have a couple of observations about that. One is you have this Republican caucus that is or a Republican majority, very slim majority in in, uh, in the House, and I don't see any way that that group can be of one mind. That they have those the Red Hawks, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Lauren Boberts, and so on, who seem to be really willing to to throw away the steering wheel and drive off a cliff because they think that this is going to shock us into uh, fiscal responsibility of some sort. I don't know what deal McCarthy can cut with Joe Biden that he's going to take back to his caucus and they're going to pass unless they can get Republican and Democratic votes and pass it and let Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene and those guys go pound sand, which is what I think they're going to they're going to have to do. What bothers me about the whole debt limit business in the, in the first place is that we're talking about, are we going to pay bills? We're going to pay money that we've already spent. These are obligations we've already incurred. It's not like, should we buy the house? It's like, we bought the house, should we pay the mortgage? You know, that kind of gets lost in this conversation. And, it's, and essentially what these periodic debates over the debt limit are about are about future spending. So it's like leverage. It's, it's, the, it's Congress using this the technicality or this rule, whatever you'd call it, as leverage against future administrations and future Congresses. Donald Trump famously said that it was irresponsible and and, and it's a, the wrong thing to do to negotiate, to try to use any uh, leverage with the debt ceiling to negotiate anything back when he was president. And in fact, Republicans, when we have uh, Republican Congresses, when you have Republican presidents, are, are notoriously willing to raise the debt ceiling as it comes along because, again, it's just this is money we already owe. It's actually, I think, maybe you disagree with me, it's a separate question uh, from what we should do with federal spending going forward. They're, they're obviously linked because if you set the new debt ceiling and then you have to try to keep under it. But right now, it, it seems the height of your responsibility to bring us so close to the cliff. The markets are already shaking. I saw news report that uh, the Dow went down 200 points. I do think they're separate because it's not actually used as leverage to negotiate anything most of the time because it's like a game of chicken and nobody wants to drive off the cliff. Even the crazy, maybe there's a couple, two, three people who are like, yeah, we can default. But for the most part, nobody wants to wear that jacket. So nothing actually does get negotiated. And this is sort of the, the debt ceiling debate is always the it's like the downstream consequence of all sorts of other irresponsible activity unrelated to what the ceiling actually is. So it's a failure that we even get to this point. We shouldn't be having to raise it. And there's going to have to be really, really serious discussions of what cuts we're going to make to uh, future spending. So there's actually a tool if people want to want to look at this online. It's called the Federal Balancing Act 2023, Federal Balancing Act 2023. And it's from this place called the Bipartisan Policy Center. And you can just go through and in a detailed manner, you can control spending. 
on the federal government. So you can control education, healthcare, defense, other sectors. You can raise or lower taxes on corporations or individuals or gas or whatever. And you can see what you do yourself to kind of fix this problem. But there's tons of levers you can pull to fix the debt problem, which is a really, really serious problem for this country. It's a problem of intergenerational equity that people today are putting trillions of dollars on the backs of children and grandchildren and great, great grandchildren. But if you are interested in how that spending actually works and how those choices work, that's a cool tool. Well, one thing that fascinates me about this whole spending debate discussion is that if you look at polls, a recent poll from um, Associated Press and, and NORC, the Center for Public Affairs Research, and it shows that you ask people if they want to cut spending and they say yes. And then you start asking them what they want to cut spending on. And for instance, Overall, they want to. They think government spends too much. But do they spend too much on education? Only twelve percent of the people say that we spend too much on education. Sixty-five percent think we spend too little. Healthcare, similar numbers. Social security, only seven percent think we spend too much. Sixty-two percent think we spend too little. Medicare, border security, the military, all these things. People want to think we're spending too little on these really essential and and huge expenditures. So the question then becomes like, where, where do you cut or where do you, where do you want to raise taxes? And this is where these politicians, I mean, they, they are chicken. They're afraid to cut programs. I mean, even the Republicans are afraid to cut a lot of programs, even though they, they talk a good game about it. They're like, are you going to want to cut Social Security? No, I don't think so. You're going to have thousands of angry old people like me going out and voting against you if you do that. It's this weird situation where people talk about they want to cut spending, but they, but they end up not being able to identify where they want to cut it. I think part of the, the the middle ground on that, which is yes, it's always hard to cut. It's hard to cut spending on anything, but where most people can agree is limits on growth in spending, which is a huge problem at the state and the federal level. And if you can agree on limits to growth, that's usually pretty amenable to both sides. But the problem is people will frame that as cuts. So if you say, you know, you know, the Federal Department of Education should only grow by this per year instead of what it's growing by currently, the attack on that is, well, you're cutting funding for education when in fact it's just growing at a slower rate. So I think caps on growth, things like true balanced budget requirements, things like that, there are good fiscal practices you can put in place that don't necessarily mean taking food out of the hands of poor Americans. You know, Are you in favor of a federal balanced budget amendment? Absolutely. And many states have them. The Volcker Alliance does a lot of, which started by Paul Volcker, does a ton of good work on balanced budget amendments. Super common sense. That something like that is actually a long-term solution to this crazy problem that we end up with, with the debt ceiling. Debt is, is a direct result of not balancing. The the uh, arguments I've read about that suggest, though, that it, it makes the economy much less flexible when you have sudden shocks to it. And that you can end up, like they said, if we had had, if we had, had these balanced budget amendments in place when COVID hit, it would have made all the effects much, much worse. I'm somewhat sympathetic to that. But the problem with that is it's sort of a, it's a Keynesian view of government spending and how it relates to the economy, which essentially says when a recession hits, you want to drastically expand spending. You want to weigh lower interest rates. You want to juice the economy. But what Keynes and those economists also said was when in boom times, then you have to contract. And the problem is we never actually contract that the interest rates stay low forever. The spending stays high. So yes, it does remove flexibility in terms of the government's ability to act, but it has not used, <laughs> used those tools responsibly in the past. We do have the ability right now 
Congress has, has the ability. Uh, the Republican Congress could pass a balanced budget right now if it wanted to. I mean, it would be a drastic and severe budget, but they could do it. And they just, they just never have. And so it's like we're asking we're asking lawmakers to put on a straitjacket and do something that they are unable to or unwilling to do on their own. So and the other so, thing, interesting thing with balanced budget amendments too is it's not like, you know, there's nothing we could ever there's there's an emergency whereby we couldn't spend the money we need to spend in this emergency. It just requires usually like a supermajority vote. It just requires a higher threshold in order to do it. So it's not like it's, you know, totally handcuffing you. Hard to get a supermajority. And and would that be a constitutional amendment then to, I mean be, I know I know you if, if you've got that constitutional requirement to override it can you just do that on an ad hoc basis or does that have to be formed like a constitutional amendment, which would require states to ratify it and everything else? I'm not sure. I think it's been proposed in a couple of different ways. So, I mean, Bill Clinton had famously, I think it was called PAYGO, which is like pay-as-you-go budgeting, where I think that was statutory. Obviously, it wasn't a constitutional amendment. So I think there are ways via statute that you can make some pretty strong balanced budget requirements at the federal level. So what's your prediction for the next uh, eight days in terms of uh, we're just going to come right up to the cliff and then yeah. say, OK, we, we got a deal. It'll be a bunch of political showmanship. McCarthy will have to appear like he's fighting that raising the debt ceiling and it'll get raised because nobody wants to default. Right. And I think you're going to have to see something that looks like a win for both sides. Like people are going to have to Biden has said, I will not negotiate period. But then apparently he's also he's made some overtures and offers. And McCarthy has insisted on X, Y, and Z. And I think he's going to have to, they're going to have to give both sides something that they can come to the rostrum and say, you know, we have, we have accommodated each other's needs as much as we can. And this is what we're going to do. Well, we have to raise the debt. So I would really like it if one of the parties, when they get in control of all the branches of government, could uh, eliminate the debt ceiling uh, requirement and just say, look, we're, we're going to set the debt ceiling at $500 billion. It's, so we're never going to reach it. And then we're going to uh, do our best then to uh, limit spending. I don't see either party doing that as a matter of political. You can imagine all the ads that would be cut against a move like that. But uh, I think it would make sense not to have it at all. It, it, I don't understand. It doesn't seem to have imposed any fiscal discipline on any. So I don't think that's a, that's a way to go. Let's move on to talk about what's going on in the city. Uh, we're waiting for Monica Ang to pop in. And uh, when she does, we can uh, switch gears. But apparently, Brandon Johnson uh, opened his first city council meeting today by saying, breaking news, this, this, this meeting is being streamed live from Naperville, which was, uh, it was a funny joke. It was a joke at the expense of Fox News. You follow that story at all? Yeah. So apparently after Johnson's election, a Fox News reporter went to a diner in Naperville, which was, you know, your first red flag. Why? What insight do voters in Naperville have about the Chicago election that is more important than going to many the many fine diners that we have in Chicago to ask people what they think about it? And the reporter was, and you maybe know more details about the guy in question, but basically went up to a total plant. And I believe even someone who was paid by the Vows campaign at some point uh, and sort of asked him what he thought. It was a middle-aged black man. And he, you know, sort of went on about how Brandon's bad for the city. He doesn't understand it. But it was kind of a farcical interview, as I understand it. Well, it was. And the the tribe, uh, the news site, the tribe broke the story on Sunday. These guys had been asked to come out to neighborhood. They said they'd gotten up at four in the morning to drive out to just happen to be at this diner. 
And they were t- they were told they were just going to talk about violence in Chicago, and then the guy turned the question about Mayor Johnson onto them, and they weren't happy about that, which is I think maybe how the how the story got got its legs. A planted source looked like, hey, we just have, let's turn to this table here behind me and talk to these guys, and uh, a really dis- disreputable news gathering on the part of Fox. Great news gathering on the part of the tribe. The tribe also broke a story on Tuesday, which I thought was very interesting to talk about. There are apparently about 200 current and former Chicago police officers who are on the so-called don't call list, as as in don't call as a witness, because they've got so many disciplinary issues and other problems that they would be seen as not credible witnesses. Get 200 Chicago police officers, <laughs> current and former, who are who are not on that list, and that that's pretty troubling. But in the, one, the one thing about stories like this that you drop your jaw and you say, you know, holy crap, I, I can't believe that they have that many. And uh, it's 200 out of what, about 11,000? Is that how many sworn officers are? Right. So, it's not, right. so it's not a huge percentage. And, and they have some examples of how this is, has affected prosecutions. But one of the questions I always have, and one of the reasons why I really, uh, really like you know, your book, when you compared other cities, it's like, okay, well, we didn't do this here. What's this like in in Atlanta. What's it like in Los Angeles and New York and Denver? Are we way out of bounds? And that would be, you know, that would be the uh, the, the question I would have is that how how shocking is this compared to other places? So yeah, is it yeah. way out of line? And and I wonder though, it seems odd to me that you could have enough negative, say either disciplinary hearings or complaints against you or some controversy in your job enough of those that you're a liability to the state in court, even though you're a police officer and, you know, in a position of authority to testify where they're saying, no, it's worse if you testify because we might lose a case because of this. It's weird that that could be true of you and you still have a job as a police officer or any, in, in you know, someone of any position of authority. This happens in other places. There are many other jurisdictions where you have police officers who are not qualified to testify for whatever reason. But it just strikes me as odd that you could, you couldn't testify, but yet you could still continue to work sort of as a police officer on the street. Like, doesn't that call into question your credibility with everything about your job? Well, it calls into question how valuable you'll be if you make an arrest or if you see a crime happening. Yeah. And it makes it so these, maybe these people need to, uh, these officers need to be on desk duty or someplace where they're not, this is not going to compromise them. But it just underscored to me the value of Block Club Chicago and the tribe and some of these other alternative news sites. And I would certainly include in that uh, Axios Chicago. And Monica Ang has popped into the Zoom to uh, talk to us about this uh, amazing story that you, you started telling at, at your website, at the Axios website, about Cook County property taxes and what happened to you with your, your humble little condo that was suddenly worth, what, 71% more than it was worth before? Yeah, you know, I can actually use real numbers. Um, you know, my editor's like, we want to use percentages or numbers. Yeah, supposedly my crappy little two bedroom uh, one bath is worth uh, $570,000. And are you living in the bean or? Right, exactly. No, it's just, it's just a little tiny place in a 122 year old building in Lakeview. That's a 71% increase over the last valuation of it, right? Yeah, which is 300 something thousand. So you just like opened up your envelope from uh, Fritz Kagi and. And I said, holy cow. There must be some mistake. And so, so we, we hired, a, you know, a really high powered appeals attorney and we thought for sure the mistake will be fixed. And we were told we were denied. 
that somehow this was um, this was justified. And so even before that, I said, you know, I'm going to do a story just using my case as uh, as an explainer story for the public on. So how do these things get calculated and then how do they um, create denials or, you know, accept it and give someone reduction? And boy, did I learn a lot. One question is the idea that you had to, you felt like you had to hire a high powered attorney to make a, a, an appeal. I've appealed our property taxes here. I live, I live, you know, you know where I live, Monica, you've been here it's on yeah. the Northwest side and I've appealed our, our property taxes a couple of times and I just sort of do it. I fill out the forms, go on the web. It's not that hard to do, but there's this thought I think that people have, which is that if you, if your appeal comes with the name of a high powered attorney, it's going to get more attention. I, I don't know that that's true. Yeah, I hired um, Ed Burke and Mike Madigan and didn't work. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I was one of those people who's like, oh boy, I bet it's super complicated. Let's leave it up to the professionals. And boy, was that not uh, a good idea. I think what you're finding was, Monica, was generally across the board, the rate of successful appeals for individuals versus the attorneys is about the same, right? Well, actually, at the the Cook County Assessor's Office, if you appeal to the Cook County Assessor, it's 38% success for the individual, 37% success for those with lawyers. At the board of review level, it's 41% success with a lawyer, 51% when you don't have a lawyer. So do you think that's, is there some sample bias there? So like, for example, when we were looking to this in Madigan days, I was super interested in how this all works. And we still have some politically, I mean, Madigan and Burke, obviously the most famous people in this sphere, but they'd Senator Robert Martwick on the Northwest side is still a property tax appeals attorney while serving as a lawmaker. Yeah. And when I talked with business owners, their opinion was none of these guys are any better than the competition. It's purely sort of a a perception of their influence and power over the process. And that's what they're making money off of rather than some sterling success rate. Well, I haven't sort of, you know, looked at success rate of Madigan versus Burke versus Joe Schmo. But what I have done is like Eric, yesterday, I actually went through the process and said, gee, how hard is it to uh, appeal to the board of review? For example, it took exactly two minutes. I plugged in this information, I plugged in that information, asked for a hearing, and I was done. And so, and I I had a lot of people come out of the woodwork and talk to me off the record. One of them is actually an analyst at the Board of Review, and he said, look, you don't have to be a genius or someone with a lawyer. You fill that out, and we will be honest and straightforward with you. We will plug in your address. We will look at all the comps in the area and see if it if you have been overassessed. If compared to others through sales or assessments, yours is particularly high. I don't know. Maybe he's like secretly saying, "Ha ha ha! I'm going to hide all the good comps from the people." But he seemed like a pretty honest person. And you can also do it yourself. Uh, I don't think a lot of people realize you can type in any address in the city and find out what they are assessed at and taxed at. And you can see who the owner is. I mean, it's a goldmine for journalists. But you can, you know, plug in the addresses of everyone around you within a quarter mile, which is fair game, and find out if you are being highly assessed compared to them. You're not even really having to plug in the addresses. You're not having to like, is that... 4110 or is that 41 you know it's all it's all there the border for you can do that for you and there are also programs that can do that for you but if you want to actually go on the assessors or the treasurer's uh website you can do that too and you find comparables you look at okay we have four bedrooms and we have two baths whatever you find the it's it it takes a few minutes I, i remember i years ago i was afraid to do it because i was afraid that maybe we were under assessed and that they would and and that i would file an appeal and they would go what you yeah. owe more money, but but in fact they don't do that. I remember uh, talking to uh, to Barrios's uh, 
former assessor, talking to his spokesman. He was saying, that never, it never, ever happens. It's like, well, they, they never raise it. So there's no risk in filing an, an appeal. Is that, I mean, is that your experience also? That Well, I haven't, I haven't ever heard of anyone who they said, oh, look at this, you're under assessed, you know, thank you for bringing that to our attention. I imagine that could happen, but I have not heard of it. But what I have heard, I actually talked to Commissioner, Board of uh, Review Commissioner Samantha Steele, and she says, and I said, so, you know, people really need to be paying more attention and really challenging things, these things more. She said, people are paying attention in Cook County. She said the national average of people who appeal their property tax assessment is 5%. Cook County, 35%. And I think that that's just from this zeitgeist or this feeling that everyone else is doing it. So I should do it too. And besides our, our assessor's offices are crooks and I'm probably being cheated. So why don't I go ahead and appeal it? But only 5% nationally, but in Cook County, we've developed this whole ecosystem of, you know, businesses, let's say very powerful and rich tax appeal law firms that say, oh no, you you definitely should go ahead and do it because this is a, a bad system to begin with. And let's just create the system where we appeal, appeal, appeal. The lawyers get their money. You might get your money. You might not. Why does it have to be that way? Why can't it just be right or you pretty right from the beginning? So we have this crazy high rate of appeals already, right? That's ins- that's by itself is crazy that a third of all property owners are like, this is wrong. I need to file government paperwork to fix this. But what's even crazier to me is the numbers you were saying earlier, where a third of the time they're right and somebody got their assessment wrong. And that yeah. seems to me like such a huge fail rate, especially given the data has never been better or like easier to pull right about real estate especially for big commercial buildings that's a different thing maybe i know there's like rent calculations and stuff there but like say your situation right there's plenty of condos in your area that you can comp against it shouldn't be that complicated right it shouldn't be and so i don't know what our lawyer did uh, to get us our denial but i do know what the assessor's office did they said you're denied and because i'm a reporter and i said i'm going to use my case as a uh, as as a teacher as a lesson for the readers can you show me the evidence you used to deny me Oh, sure, Monica, here you go. Oh, look at this. There's this condo across the street that sold for 580. So you're lucky because we only, you know, assessed yours at 570. It's like, oh, well, let's take a look at it. Okay, brand new building. So 20 year old building, two floors. It's a duplex, three bedrooms, two bathrooms, gleaming countertops. Holy cow. What in God's freaking green earth makes you think that's a comp for my piece of crap two bedroom one bath tiny single floor 122 year old condo in what world is that a comp um yeah looks like we made a mistake monica yeah and the thing about it is that i, I don't know how it is now but i do know that under barrio some of the previous assessment assessor uh administration the formula they use the way they calculate this stuff it is opaque or it, ha- it certainly has been i don't know if, it, if it's you know, they, they were well, I, I spent two or three hours did. saying, tell me how you make your original assessments. Well, it's complicated, Monica. It's a complicated algorithm using your location and other sales in your area and the portion of the building you own and historical data. And I said, well, and I said, okay, and my, my square footage, right? No, we don't really know your square footage. Well, the bathroom, number of bathrooms and bedrooms, right? No, we really don't know bathrooms and bedrooms. Okay. That seems weird. So you're not even using my square footage 
or bathrooms and bedrooms. Well, yeah, condos and two flats, they're, they're particularly hard for us to like figure out information on. And they said, well, it's a mass appraisal system and it can be fixed once you do your appeal. I said, okay, I did my appeal and you guys completely rejected me. So, I mean, I'm not even, I'm not sure that it's right from the beginning or even right when they tried to fix it in the appeal system. It's weird to me that, you know, a system is bad when someone's advice to you is that you should, I think like kind of the official advice. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they go out in the assessor's office, I believe in other offices go around and do these town hall type of things where the whole point here's how you feel here's how we're wrong like a third of the time somehow so instead of figuring out systemically how our one job we're wrong a third of the time on how we could maybe go about fixing that we need you to do more work and then we'll tell you if you're right or not but you you have to foia for information And and we'll make a bunch of lawyers rich in the process. It's a messed up system, but my story tomorrow, so the fourth story in the series goes tomorrow, and it's what the Cook County Assessor's Office is doing to try to fix the bad data they have. But given given this, there's there's a kicker to it. Um, So they're trying to get access to something that's called a... um, that's this big federal database of appraisals. So a lot of appraisals will go to the feds and they say, if we can get those, then we can find out how many bedrooms are in Monica's place and what a square footage is and how many bathrooms she has. The the big problem, the reason why they thought that the comp across the street was a good comp for me, at least age-wise, was because they didn't know there was a new building there. They said, building the buildings department never sent us the permit that shows there's a new building. So we thought that that was more than a 100-year-old building. So they said they're going to try to get better and more up-to-date permits. They said they're also going to create a sales validation team that will review sales that seem inconsistent or characteristics that seem strange in their system. Um, they're also going to increase field inspections where they actually put real eyeballs on a property and are not just going on the old outdated documents that they have in there. So I said, okay, so when are you going to do this? Mm, can't say, can you give me a ballpark like 2026? We might have this. I, I can't even get that. Hey, Chris Fitzkay was reelected last year, right? 22? Yes. I was fairly enthusiastic about him when he took over, when he beat Berrios and, and uh, was pledging a lot of reforms. Do you think that he's come through on some of that stuff? Is he? Well, if you talk to his chief of staff, he's trying his darndest. So so Scott Smith, his chief of staff says, we're trying, we walked into a mess. We walked into a lot of bad data and we're trying to fix it. And here's what I'll give them. There's a, there's a university of Chicago hair school of business researcher called Chris Berry, who did a big paper about uh, what's wrong with our, our property assessment assessment system. And he recently told this governmental magazine called Route 50 that he thinks that Kagi has fixed a lot. Quote, some of the lower priced properties that were being assessed at 25 or even 45% more than they were worth on the market under Berrios. Now, the, a lot of those problems are entirely gone in Cook County. He says, I was really shocked when I saw the quality the assessments under Kagi coming out, and I thought it would take much longer. That said, I still had my issue where not only they were assessing me wrong, but they were denying my appeal on really bad information. Yeah, yeah I, I would be very, very curious. One, is there a gold standard across the country where you're like, hey, this place does this really well, and, and only 5% of the appeals are found to be valid? Or like, 
what what should we be aiming for? Do you have any sense of that? Like, what should we well, be measuring? That's a, that's a really good question. And I would like to expand this out. I do know that um, that last session at, at the state legislature level, um, Senator Neil Jones introduced a bill that would say you only have to pay a portion of your property taxes, whatever you paid last year, until you've exhausted all your appeals and lost. And then if you lose, you pay that portion plus interest. That's been cleared in Montana, I believe in Texas and in Missouri, didn't go anywhere in Illinois. I'm told, you know, oh, we're going to lose all this tax revenue. We won't be able to pay for firemen and teachers if we allowed people to, to hold on to their money. Because, I mean, I'm still paying. I'm paying thousands of dollars more than I should be paying until my certificate of error goes through. Some, you know, grandmas out there would lose their home. Because right. they couldn't afford to be paying all this unjust tax while they're waiting for the correction to come through. But to, to catch up on your story, you did get a certificate of error, and you explained how to go about that. And that involved, involved filing a Freedom of Information Act request and pursuing it still further, right? I mean, they didn't just change their mind. So so I got it in the, within the process, you know, I, I, I'll be honest, within the process of reporting. Had I been a regular person, I would have gotten that rejection from the Cook County Assessor's Office and said, hey, I want to see your proof. I follow it, I get my proof, and then I go to the board of review and say, hey, look at this proof. They denied me, they assessed it based on this bad comp, and then they denied me on this bad comp. Can I get relief? And theoretically, I would have gotten relief because it's pretty clear the building they said was 100 years old is only 20 years old. Still not sure why they would have used a huge place like a two-story place to compare against but mine. They don't know those those numbers. They don't know that it's two stories, right? They just... Yeah, they don't know. But so this is what I said. And it was in the story. I said, but come on, you could just go on Zillow and you could see. Exactly. That's the most frustrating part of all this. I'm looking to buy a place in Chicago. I've been looking the last six months. My wife and I are looking to buy the amount of insane detail you can get for every single condo, every house. For the most part, like you can get the data. That's what's so frustrating to me is if you let a chat GPT like thing go crawl Zillow and come up with what the property is worth, there's no way it's a third of the time wrong. It's got to be, it has to be less than that. That's the frustration. So I said to Scott Smith, who's the chief of staff at Kagi's office, I said, but when you see these things fly up, my place fly up 71%, couldn't that be like, ding, 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 ding? Let's just exactly. double check before we go through, you know, saying that her thing is the property increases 200,000 more. Let's just double check, chick, chick, chick. Oh, wow. That's a brand new building. Oh my gosh. Look at those marble countertops. Oh, look at floor to ceiling windows. Oh, look, it's a duplex. All that information. And he's like, well, if we did that for one, we'd have to do them for all. And you said, yes. And I, I said, mean, yeah. I, and you'd be stopping a $200,000 error. And he said, you know, we we don't have a big staff. We can't be adding time onto that. And and then I looked back and the Tribune did a story where it's like, you know, Berrios' office is using stuff like Zillow to make, uh, you know, to, to make uh, assessments. And so I think they didn't want to get caught in that. I'm not asking him to make to to create his assessments based on Zillow. I'm asking him to just gather available information to see if maybe some of your old records are wrong. Yeah, and maybe there ought to be a threshold if if you've got like a forty percent increase. Right. Like that's like, hey, let's let's, let's double check that. That'll be spit out of a system and and sent back and said, let's take a take a second look at this. I, I am curious about what the success rate is for these appeals in other major cities and other major jurisdictions, because that would really tell you uh, how screwed up we are, or whether maybe some of that is, maybe it's all screwed up in Atlanta, Miami, Philadelphia, whatever, but that that they don't have this tradition of politicians being 
property tax lawyers, so people just don't file their appeals. I, I'm guessing, Monica, that in your situation, most people would have said, oh, well, I guess my condo is worth $570,000 now. <laughs> I got to pay it because they get frustrated. Once you're denied, uh, you know, am I going to keep hassling with this? And that's that's outrageous. Yeah. I mean, you figure a high power law firm, they know what they're doing. I don't know what I'm doing, but they didn't. They just accepted the denial and they said, okay, we're going to move it up to the board of review and then to the property tax appeals board and then maybe the circuit court. Okay. And let's say they were successful with those. I'd have to give them a third of what I got back. There's a very funny, I think this may be apocryphal. I'm pretty sure I read this in a actual book about tax policy. So Chicago and throughout Illinois used to have a personal property tax where it's almost like a wealth tax. So they say, you know, wow. everything in the house, or if you have a big factory, every piece of thing, every every piece of machinery in the factory, we're going to value that and tax you based on that. And uh, we still to this day have something called the personal property replacement tax that was instituted when we got rid of that. But the classic Chicago story to show how deep seated that corruption is, is that a paper, which I can't remember which major paper it was, would in exchange for an endorsement of the existing assessor would be allowed to move all of their printing presses out of the printing press where they were printing papers when the inspector came to to assess oh the value gosh. of the property inside. So that we got rid of that tax. I don't think we're getting rid of the actual property tax anytime soon. Yeah, no. I mean, I just, I mean, I, I, for the record, I do not mind paying for taxes. I love paying for schools and services. And I think it's important to do, but I just think it should be done using good data. So let's end this podcast. We like to recommend things that we've been watching or reading or Monica, in your case, something that you've eaten recently uh, at a restaurant that you would recommend to people. Um. Well, I last night, uh, we, we had a little birthday dinner from my partner, Colin, and um, he and I went to El Barco, which is uh, a, a sort of a Mexican seafood restaurant on Ashland that we like to go to, especially on a beautiful night. And I hadn't had their Baja fish tacos, but they are delicious. They really do a nice job. A lot of times in Baja, like there's tiny little bits of fish, but they use a nice slab of fish on each taco with super fresh, pliant uh, flour tortillas and a really nice sauce on there. And then they've got this great um, salsa macho, which is sort of a, a sort of sweet uh, fried chilies salsa that they serve um, free when the stuff comes out. So on a beautiful night, I would really recommend El Barco. Um, and then they, you know, they serve the micheladas in the um, in the frosted mugs. And then they serve you a Pacifico and lots of lime. And I really just love, uh, you know, I ask places, I'll have club soda with lime. And here I said, and I want a lot of lime. And they put like a whole bunch of lime juice at the bottom. And it's the most delicious thing, the most refreshing thing. I, I don't go for cocktails. I go for really limey club soda. And so that's what I got. That sounds wonderful. Austin, what are you uh, recommending these days? I mean, El Barco made me think of, there's a place up the street called Dusty Groove, which is a very, very good record store for specifically jazz, Brazilian music, and African nice. music. They're really, really, really good. Like so maybe, maybe the best in the country just in terms of jazz and used jazz. It's a really good record store. And then the other thing, I went to a show last night at Talia Hall, and I did something I've never done there, which was to get a box. I've never had a box at a show in my whole Ooh. life because it seems like, you know, you're at a show and you see the people up in that box. And you're like, what did they pay? A million dollars to get in this box? It was like per person, maybe eight dollars more to do. Oh, wow. And it was lovely. And you get to feel better than everybody else. So I, I would recommend trying out the box at Talia Hall, but not there's a two person box that seems way too cramped. 
there's one that's like, like six people and it was great and what did you what did you see i saw this guy uh Hermeto pasquale he was a uh, He's a Brazilian, actually, speaking of Dusty Groove. He's an artist from the 70s. Miles Davis said that he was one of the most impressive musicians he's ever worked with. And uh, he has a really interesting life story. He was born basically in the rainforest. There's no electricity. And he couldn't work in agriculture like his family because he was albino. So he stayed inside and played accordion. So he became the savant at a very young age. And he kind of invented bossa nova music coming out of Brazil. He helped do that. So he's on, he's like 80 something years old and he's touring the United States. It was really good. I'm recommending a book called Romantic Comedy by Curtis Sittenfeld. I don't know if any of you have ever read Curtis Sittenfeld. She's a, a Cincinnati-based writer. And this this book, I mean, it's romantic comedy. It, it is, it follows a lot of the tropes of romantic comedy, uh, you know, meet cute kind of thing. Uh, one of the things I really liked about it, the main character is a sketch writer for a show that it's, it's modeled almost directly after Saturday Night Live. And they talk about, it. She, she, it's in her voice. And it talks a lot about, how that show is put together, a lot of behind the scenes information. Sittenfeld does a lot of research for her book. She she wrote the book Rodham, which was a, a fictionalized account of what would have happened if if uh, Bill and Hillary had broken up and uh, and uh, Hillary Rodham had gone on to greatness. And she she does a lot of research, and so it, it really tells a really nice behind the scenes story from from a Saturday Night Live type show. And uh, and and uh, Sittenfeld is really good at at internal monologues and uh, uh, really bringing forth how people really think and how people really talk. There's a wonderful sequence of email exchanges between this this. Uh, the main character and her love interest that that uh, rings really true. So so I recommend that book, Romantic Comedy by Curtis Sittenfeld. Uh, I want to thank Monica Eng for popping in. Thank you, Monica. And, I, and thank you for that great uh, series that you've done. Uh, and the website is what, axios.com slash Chicago? Or what, what is the uh, yeah, website? Yeah, you can just, it's so, probably best to just Google um, Axios Chicago, but it's axios.com slash local slash Chicago. And uh, Austin Berg? from the Illinois Policy Institute. Always fun. I'm Eric Zorn from the Picayune Sentinel. And that's a podcast, folks. We'll talk to you next week. Subscribe to the Mincing Rascals podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Music Store. You can now also follow us on Spotify, or you can keep listening online at WGNRadio.com. Radio.com.